No, it's men's prayer breakfast. <laughs> I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's a men's prayer breakfast. Um, it's happening this Saturday, 7 a.m. So I encourage all of you men and all of you who are listening and watching on Facebook Live uh, to make it a point to set that time aside and come on out this Saturday at 7 a.m. We do have a time of fellowship uh, breakfast, uh, but more importantly, we come together and uh, and pray. We pray for the needs of the church, of course. Uh, we lift up each other's needs as far as uh, the men are concerned, but we also lift up, of course, the, the needs of the nation and everything that's going on. And so we, we cover all of these things in that time. And it's important for us as men to gather together on a regular basis and and uh, together pray and seek the Lord in His wisdom and His will for all matters that pertain to life and godliness. And so I encourage you to come out for that. And we're also going to take another moment to, uh, we want to, I want to continually place before you right now the needs of Texas and now Louisiana as we see those areas affected by Hurricane Harvey. And um, so Hurricane Harvey and, uh, apparently came inland. There was a high which made it stay for a while there, and that's why it dumped so much rain. Uh, the high, uh, was, high pressure was inland, and so it kept it right there. And then it went back out into the Gulf, grabbed some more water, and then came back in and, and uh, is dumping that as we speak right now. So it went up a little north uh, into Louisiana, uh, but I know that Randy's son in Houston, um, his house was flooded. In, in fact, his house was on TV, um, had, from what I could see, I mean, the, the gate itself, um, probably, what, a four-foot fence or so, um, was completely um, underwater. You could just barely see like half the garage, and so uh, he just barely made it out on, on in time. Um, it was maybe like two inches from the door, and so but they're safe. Uh, all of their family's safe, but there are a lot of people who are impacted by this um, really catastrophic storm that hit um, our coastline there in the Gulf of of, uh, of uh, Mexico, and uh, it's going to take some time for them to recover. Um, they're going to be um, dealing with this for a number of years to come. And so I want to take, again, take a moment and just pray for them and, uh, and pray for our time in the Word. Again, we're in Numbers 15 uh, this evening. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you right now, Lord, and nothing, Lord, is, uh, is beyond your knowledge. You know all things, and uh, you know the needs of each and every person who have been impacted by uh, directly by this uh, this hurricane, as um, Hurricane Harvey has come and pretty much devastated uh, much of Houston and uh, surrounding areas. And now we pray for those who are in Louisiana. I pray, Lord, that you would keep everyone safe, Father, that they would make it to high ground. And, uh, and Lord, that you would be with those first responders who are out there. Keep them safe as well, Father. I thank you for all of those who have volunteered and uh, brought numerous um, uh, personal watercrafts down from surrounding areas and uh, are volunteering their time um, to rescue people uh, from their homes that have been flooded. Father, again, I just uh, we lift them all up to you, Father. Our heart goes out to them, and uh, we uh, pray for those families who have experienced losses already, <clears throat> loved ones who have died, who have perished in this uh, storm, and, uh, and, Lord, we ask that you'd uh, bring them comfort, Father, as only you can. 
and uh, in that you would, Lord, bring people, surround people, them uh, with people, Father, that um, that know you, Lord, and can provide uh, some sort of hope, even in the midst of such devastation. And uh, so, Lord, we commit that into your hands, Lord. We um, we thank you once more just for, for this evening. <clears throat> we thank you, Lord, that we can gather here this evening, Father, as we um, open up the Bible, your word. <clears throat> we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us. Father, that we would um, have open hearts, Lord, to receive that which you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding. And as we continue going through the study of the book of Numbers, Father, that even though the Israelites have done so much to um, demonstrate um, just hard hearts and a rebellious attitude, Father, you continue to be patient and merciful toward them. And Lord, it's just an example of how merciful and patient you are with us. I pray, Lord, that we as your people would respond to that, that we would live as living sacrifices unto you, because that is truly our reasonable service. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands right now, Lord. We ask your blessing upon our time together, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so again, we're in Numbers chapter 15. And um, so just to kind of, I think it's important right now to go over the last four chapters just briefly, because I think it paints a good picture uh, in a good introduction of this chapter and what we're going into in, in chapter 15. Um, because considering what has been going on the last four chapters, I see God is being very patient, being very merciful um, with the children of Israel. I mean, you talk about complaining. I mean, these are the people of God. These are the people that have been um, delivered from slavery. God demonstrate Straighted his power in front of them, but right before their eyes. Well, in chapter 11, they are complaining. They were having strong cravings and a desire to eat meat. And so they received what they asked for. But we know that it served as judgment and not necessarily God, quote unquote, caving in to their desires. A plague overcame them and many died. Chapter 12 uh, saw Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses. They spoke against Moses and God dealt with them by calling them to appear before him, uh, called them to the carpet, so to speak. And God questioned them. He asked them why it was that they did not fear speaking against his servant Moses. And he struck Miriam with leprosy for a week. In chapter 13, Moses sent in 12 spies into the promised land. Ten came back with one unified and bad report. Two returned with a unified and good, faithful, courageous report. A true report. And no doubt that we saw how it was that it grieved God's heart. It grieved Caleb's heart. And it grieved Joshua's heart. And then in chapter 14, we see the people fully rebel against Moses. And Aaron, wishing to kill them, in fact. They wanted to take him out and stone him. But God intercedes on behalf of Moses. And then, as God offers to Moses to completely take the nation of Israel out, 
and make a greater and mightier nation out of Moses. Moses then steps it, steps in, does not skip a beat, doesn't even consider the offer, and intercedes on behalf of the children of Israel. And it's in chapter 14 that God promises judgment on the Israelites and does not allow any of those who were 20 years of age and older to enter into the promised land. In fact, he commands them to turn around and go right back into the wilderness. But what we saw in that chapter is that some did try and go into the promised land anyway, and they were routed by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. You could say that the Israelites were at this point at an all-time low in the history of the nation. They were dissatisfied. They were rebellious. They, in fact, desired a change in leadership, one that would more closely reflect what they imagined their needs to be, what they deemed to be best for them. They almost did this by force, but God did not allow them to follow through with that plan. So after all that, the question is, you know, as we go into Numbers chapter 15, so what does God do? You know, after all of that, I mean, they're complaining and murmuring. They even speak against Moses, his servant. They do all of that. They even have judgment come down on them. What what does God do? Well, he does what God would do. He gives them a reminder of his faithfulness. He gives them a reminder of his patience. And he gives them a lesson in thanksgiving, atonement, and the seriousness of his commands. That's what he does. He lays it all out. God, what we need to understand, he does not abandon them. But instead, he seemingly brings them in. He draws them in even closer. What a lesson for us. As our natural tendency is to push people away, it's to kind of build a wall, erect a wall, and not allow people to come between us and them. And here it is, the character of God is, no, I'm going to bring them in even closer. I'm going to remind them of my goodness. I'm going to remind them of the fact that at this point, they need to give thanksgiving. They need to demonstrate that that through their sacrifices. In fact, they need to understand that they need to atone for their sins. That's what they need to understand. So he seemingly brings them in even closer. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So that's what we're going to basically see this evening in chapter 15 of the book of Numbers. So let's start out by taking a look at the first 10 verses, uh, which really the main thing as we look through these verses is this drink offering that's included with all of these sacrifices. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord, Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil, and you shall offer with the burnt offering or 
for the sacrifice, a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall offer for a grain offering two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hen of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hen of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering, a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with a bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hen of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, we've gone through the sacrifices, so, so that I won't go through again. I want to instead focus on the one thing that God is in making the difference in, in all of these sacrifices. Now, after all is said and done, again, I want to remind you, God does not reject these people. He does not strike them down with pestilence. He does not disinherit them and make a greater nation and a mightier nation out of Moses. He doesn't do any of those things. What God does is, in essence, he takes them back to school. All of these sacrifices and the reason for them and the manner in which they are to be handled and sacrificed had been given to them before. This was nothing new for them. The law had already been given. So this is a reminder of the necessity for atonement for sin. It's like he's he's going through. After all of that, that they just got done going through and doing. It's like, let me remind you of all these sacrifices. The people have sinned. They need to confess. They need to repent. They have to have their sins atoned for with the shedding of blood, with the sacrifice. The shedding of blood is very important, right? We, we know this. They know this. And just in this alone, just in going through the sacrifices, God is demonstrating His patience and His love toward His people. He's not saying this is the end of the road. He's not saying, well, you've gone too far. No, He's demonstrating mercy. But even more than mercy, what He's demonstrating here is grace. Because they're still going to receive what they don't deserve. He's telling them they're still going to go into the promised land. That is the people of Israel. God says, when you come into the land you are to inhabit. Again, God's word is, is sure. And if he says when, it's not if, it's not conditional, It certainly is what he says it is. It's when you come into the land you are to inhabit. Meaning they will enter the promised land. Their time of entry, though, has been delayed by some 38 plus years at this point. Secondly, he says, listen. Soon thereafter, when he says, when you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving you. Number one, hey, listen, I'm giving you this land. Number two, um, the people, they're going to go in. Both of these things are promises. They're true. They're going to come to fruition. 
God is faithful. And His promises are good. Just as what Mandy was sharing with her son, telling him, you know, about the light of the world. And as we grow in the Lord, as we continue to see God's faithfulness in our own lives, does, does your faith not grow in Him? Absolutely, it should. As you see time and time again how it is that He is trustworthy, He's faithful, He provides, He does all of these things for us. It should grow our faith. Romans chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says, No unbelief made him, that is Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, Abraham had gotten to the point to where he believed God. He believed God that when he he asked for his son, That is when God asked for Abraham's son, Isaac. That we know in Hebrews, it says that, it tells us what he was thinking. That you know what? He was even even able to resurrect him from the dead. If that's what he needed to do, that's what he would do. Do we have that kind of faith? Do we understand God to be that type of God who definitely his word is good? What he says is true and it will come to fruition. Joshua chapter 21 verse 45 says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass and none has failed even up to this point and none will fail. None of it. How many people feel like they're left alone when they're going through some kind of discipline, some kind of correction with the Lord? I think that that feeling is very real. I think what happens is oftentimes the person will withdraw personally and expose themselves to this type of isolation and in time of discipline. And a lot of times it's, uh, it's self-applied. It's, it's, we do it to ourselves. Many people do feel like this, but God all, is always close to the one who is under correction and desires that that person will know that and then draw also themse- themselves near to God. You know, as you, as you come to realize that God, God's been there the whole time, yeah, He's been there the whole time. Even King David, as he's writing the Psalms, there were some that he wrote, you know, how long, Lord? You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't understand, but what he continued to do, he was considered to be a man after God's own heart, right? It's like, even though the feelings aren't there, even though the emotions aren't there, he continued to draw near to the Lord. Why? Because he knew that the Lord was always there. Although he felt like the Lord had forsaken him, turned his face from him. The truth of the matter, God is always near. And as we look at this chapter and we see how it is that God is handling his people. We see that this intimacy is the very thing that these sacrifices speak of. You see, the sacrifices themselves are a form of thanksgiving to the Lord, of trusting in Him, of having faith in Him. 
But with the sacrifice, God was telling the Israelites to include a portion of the drink offering of wine. So what does this mean? They knew very well what this mean. This meant. And we ought to know today. This means that this was an express, expression of thanksgiving. And the other part of what what does wine um, illustrate? What does it mean in the Bible? A joyful heart. Joy. Well, that's interesting. Because all this, I, I just went through chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, and now going into 15. And all these things that the people of Israel did. And yet the Lord is bringing them to this point. I want to remind you of these sacrifices. And I, I, I want also in there this drink offering. It's interesting, given the events that preceded this command from the Lord, He was reminding them to confess, confess, to repent, and atone. But in the midst of this, to also not forget to be thankful. And no joy in the grace and mercy of the Lord, His goodness and His faithfulness. How often in the middle of dealing with consequences, the consequences of our sins, those sinful actions we feel again abandoned. But that, by the way, is the lying whisper of Satan in our ears. God has never abandoned us. In fact, He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will love you with an everlasting love. So even in the midst of discipline, of correction, God says, keep sacrificing, keep coming to me. Be thankful, be joyful, because you are mine. Is he not worthy to be praised? Therefore, we worship him, not because of us, but because he is good and he is faithful and he is worthy to be praised at all times. Verse 11, thus it shall be done for each bull or ram or for each lamb or young goat. As many as you offer, so shall you do with each one, as many as there are. Every native Israelite shall do these things in this way in offering a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if a strange stranger is sojourning with you or anyone is living permanently with you, among you and he wishes to offer a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, he shall do as you do. For the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations, you and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. So, basically, it is, as we read, it's one law, one rule, one statute, a set of uh, law for all people. Whether the Israelites, uh, whether there were with the Israelites, those who were... Uh, permanently staying with them. They were just a part of the Israelites at that time. Or um, there were people who were temporarily staying with them, uh, sojourning or traveling with them from one point to the other. The same law, the same rule applied to them as it did to the Israelites. Verse 17, 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the, from the threshing floor. So shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution contribution throughout your generations. So, again, the Lord is um, saying there, when you come into the land to which I bring you, it was required for the Israelites to make this um, receive offering to the Lord. This, this has to be a word of encouragement from the Lord to the people. Because what he's telling them, even from the beginning of this chapter, through even this point, is he, he's helping them to set their minds on the promised land, on the hope that lied before them. Not on the present circumstances, but what came after this. What would be fulfilled after the wilderness Because God had just judged them and told the Israelites to go back into the wilderness and not go into the promised land. But again, God is setting their minds on things above and not what is temporary, what is what what the present circumstances are. Keeping their hearts and minds set on the promises of God will help them make it through whatever it is that they experience in the wilderness and onto and into the promised land. There are many today who are not uh, walking in the abundant life with Jesus Christ for one reason or another. We touched on that a a bit on Saturday. We talked about consecration um, up the hill at the men's retreat. And that was my topic, was consecration. But there are personal reasons why it is that we are not walking in that abundant life in Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about peace, confidence, joy, contentment. Those are the things that I'm talking about. Not talking about the external things. Because no matter what state Paul found himself in, he had learned to be content. Right? It's it's having your, your thoughts... Be in on a place and in a place that's far beyond the present circumstances. It doesn't matter. It doesn't shake you what's happening today. Why? Because there's something way beyond this place that we're living in. The things that we're experiencing. But whether you're walking in that rich, abundant life in Christ or not, you need to set your mind on the riches of God's promises. Because that'll get you through those times. That'll help you get through those times in a manner in which you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It does a person no good to be going through trials in their lives and draw away, draw back from the congregation of God's people. To draw away from the church. To stop coming to men's and women's studies. To stop going to everything. I don't, I don't want to be around anyone. Well, that's not the answer. 
In fact, that might very well aggravate the situation that you're in. It won't help you at all. It doesn't help God's people to draw away. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is in your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In, in Philippians 4, 8, the latter portion of that verse says, If there is anything worthy of praise... Think about these things. Too often we think about the things that are not worthy of praise. And we dwell on them. Why do we do that to ourselves? The saying goes, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. I don't find that to be true. I think the people who are, who are most heavenly minded will be do the most, earth, most earthly good. Because they'll understand the importance of the day. They'll understand what it means to redeem the time, to make the best use of our time today, to cap to capture every moment of every day, to look at every situation as a divine ordained moment that God has placed before us. It is that person who fixes their eyes on the beyond, on heaven, that fixes their eyes more clearly on the today. So fix your eyes on the hope of heaven and the things that pertain to heaven. Because the temporary gets swallowed up by the eternal. And nothing is greater than the hope and love of God in Christ. Verse 22, as we continue, But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses, from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then... If it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And to all their congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. Verse 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So, unintentional and intentional sins. Now, again, the law as we see here, applied to Israelites, Israelites as well as sojourners, and those who uh, were with them at the time, strangers that uh, were perhaps among them temporarily, the law applied to them all evenly. 
But let's talk about unintentional sins first. Because it's interesting that many don't give much consideration to those sins. As we saw here, it was a mistake. It was unintentional. I didn't mean to. Well, in a way, they're almost dismissed completely. Like as if they were any less of a sin or maybe treated as even a non-sin. But as we see here, I mean, the bulk of the verses that we just went over requires still a sacrifice, atonement for those sins, right? They're unintentional. It was a mistake. Perhaps we should overlook them. Don't worry about them. God knows. Yes, he does know. That's, that's the point. He does, he does know and he requires atonement even for those sins that, well, they were done unintentionally. In fact, some of the worst sins are committed with good and great intentions. But does that really matter before God? Now, these good or great intentions don't dismiss or they don't justify sin. Is gossip a sin? About causing division, is that a sin? Not following through. This is simple. Not following through with a yes. Is that a sin? Let your yes be yes, your no, no. Right? How about anxiety and frustration? Is that a sin? Discontentment? Unthankfulness? Pride? Selfishness? Well, God made us this way, so truly, maybe lack of self-control? Anger? Impatience? Irritability? Judge? Meant a judgmental spirit, envy, jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness, any of those? They are, right? In fact, there's a brother by the name of Jerry Bridges who wrote a whole book on this. It's titled Respectable Sins. Of course, the, the title itself is, uh, is tongue-in-cheek, right? There... They're sins that are oftentimes committed and yet kind of passed over, overlooked, hardly confessed whatsoever. But nonetheless, they are sins, and those are also the very sins that placed our Lord on the cross. And those are for those, those are also sins for which He went to the cross for. So we need to be careful, and I, I pray that these things that are a part of our lives, these things that I went through, even anxiety, even frustration, even worry, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is about to tackle that as well. All of these things are, are sin, they're doubting God, they're stopping short of having true faith in Him. And we should repent of those sins. And we should be asking the Lord to help us with those areas that we fall short in. To be refined, to be strengthened. To more reflect the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
So those those are the unintentional sins. So how about the intentional sins? Intentional sins. That's uh, it's a bit presumptuous. This is referring to a sin or sins that are that are known to the person before they commit them. They are. This is basically the person who is who's thumbing their nose at God. Who's openly testing him, rebelling against him, mocking him even. It's the person who, regardless of what word they hear, taught on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday night or at a Bible study or in their reading, that they neglect to be convicted or be allowed to be convicted by the word. And what happens is the heart gets calloused. The conscious conscience gets seared. And pretty soon you can't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You've completely drawn away. And in essence, you have died spiritually at that point. The person who does this openly and without any kind of regret or conviction is a man who God had given the command to deal with within the congregation of the Israelites. This type of arrogant rebellion was not to be tolerated and public immorality was to be judged severely and not rewarded with tolerance. Such depravity would infect the Israelites and cause an internal decay that would kill them morally. It would spread like gangrene, like cancer, and lead them all to severe judgment. Not today. Today, anyone who judges such depraved people are made to feel guilty. Guilty for possessing such a perspective. And then, let alone if you voice that perspective. You see, what we are to be is we, we ought to be fruit inspectors. We, we ought to be able to judge um, the outward evidence or lack thereof of any kind of faith, anything that... That's what we are to do with each other. That's, we, that's how we hold each other accountable. It's the only way we can do that. But today, if you stand up and do something like that with one another... We are called guilty instead of the person that's doing the evil. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 through 23 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Kind of sounds like our day today. Our day right now. The way things are. And so the Lord makes it a point and He draws this out and He commands for this person who is sinning intentionally to be taken outside of the camp and be completely cut off from among the people and His guilt shall be upon Him. And then immediately there's an example of such a person. Verse 32 while the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. 
And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, on the surface, it may not seem like much. I mean, come on. On the Sabbath, he was just gathering a few sticks. He was, he was doing a work on the, on the Sabbath. And in fact, what we would see today is a person that would be hailed as a courageous social reformer. One who, all he was doing was pushing the envelope of progress and championing personal liberation from an oppressive governing force. Sounds good, right? You could even see someone on a speaking circuit go throughout the world, you know, speaking on this. And other people applauding it. But what God was doing is immediately he was establishing the fact that his social order and the law of God were more important than an individual person's right to neglect, attack, challenge, or attempt to destroy this law and social order. Again, remember that I told you, as far as tolerance was concerned within the congregation, sin entering the congregation, tolerance was not something that should be applauded, not something that should be rewarded. It's something that needs to be dealt with immediately. And for a person who is continually in a state of rebellion, mocking God, thumbing his, his thumb at him, thumbing his nose at him, you know, and, and just really mocking God, that person has a seared conscience. That person has no conviction. That person is already spiritually dead. Now, I want to touch a bit on the Sabbath. Because this is the Old Testament, of course, and we, we're looking at the law. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, it says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you, ever, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, says one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then it goes on to say, observe it in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to him. Now, the reason why we have our main weekly service on Sunday is because that was traditionally the day that the first church would gather. We thus observe a day of corporate worship on that day also, but it is no longer because of a strict mandate, but because this is the day that has been chosen to honor the Lord and give him thanks as a church, together, corporately, worshiping God and giving Him praise. But in the day of the Israelites, they were mandated. They were under the law, not under grace in Christ. And thus, this man, who, again, he rebelliously and presumptuously went against the law, was found guilty and taken out of the camp, and he was put to death. 
it, it basically reflected what had already taken place in the heart of man. He was already spiritually dead. But this could not be tolerated or allowed within the camp of the Israelites. Otherwise, it would have infect, infected, it would have impacted the rest of the congregation. Now, the final verses here, it reminded me of something that I had been given as a gift some time ago. And I pulled it out. In this paper, it has Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. And in this Ziploc bag are some tassels, four of them, with belt loops to where you could put them around uh, your belt. This was given to me by a friend of ours who is a Messianic Jew, and it just reminded me of these verses that we're about to read. The Lord said to Moshe, or Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels or tzitzits on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look, uh, to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your Elohim. I am the Lord, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your Elohim. I am the Lord, your Elohim, or God. Right? I know you guys are, that's not what my Bible is reading. What translation do you have? The book of the Midmar, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verses 37 through 41. The color blue, it's not noted here, right for us, but ser it serves as a reminder of God's holy word, to remember it and remember that it came from the throne of God. The tassel was a good reminder of God's commandments. You know, to look down and see these tassels dangling there would, would serve as a good reminder. Right, we see these, here's the loop right here. That's the loop, and this, this is what would be hanging. Perhaps you may have seen these on some Jewish gentlemen, right? And they're hanging there. Today, as far as New Testament believers, we may not wear tassels to serve as reminders of God and His Word. But we do wear jewelry with crosses, fish symbols on our cars, crosses on hills, Doves to remind us of God's spirit and so on and so forth. We have all of these things around us to serve as reminders. Can you imagine, you know, you're at the point to where you're going to lose it, right? Anger comes over you after, over someone who just cut you off. And you're like, oh, there's a bumper sticker and it has a fish sign symbol on there. You know, you're like, oh, God bless you. <laughs> you must be in a hurry. You know, it just kind of like, <laughs> it should it should convict you, right? It should remind you of God's word and how it is that we are to be as God's people. But man's pride will always pervert such great reminders. 
and turn them into idols. These statues that mean more than what they should. Sometimes even worshipped and considered to be, to be marks of our spiritual pride. Because even the religious leaders would make the, the tasseled area, you could say, the tassels. Well, let me make it extra big for you. Because why? This lets you know that I'm very spiritual. That I am maybe even superior to you in spirituality. Man, man can mess everything up, can't they? We can even take churches and it's like, oh, well, what church do you go to? Oh, we uh, fellowship at Refuge. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we fellowship it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big church. You guys are super blessed over there. That's, that's amazing. And people can do that. We, met, we mess it up. Not that it is, and I'm not making that comparison, insinuating anything, okay? Please, please don't get me wrong. I'm saying we're the ones that can pervert those things, okay? And we do all the time. In fact, we can do the same with our clothing. I know this church is, hey, you come as you are. Come as you are. Listen, our Sunday best is fine, so long as we don't think it means we are more reverent than the person who isn't dressed to our liking. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, well, I like to dress like this on Sunday mornings. Sometimes just like this. I do. Right? But I don't... I Personally, I mean, I'm, I'm probably below average. You know, but some people, sometimes we, we tend to dress this way and then we look at others who aren't dressing at least that way and we think, man, you should at least not be putting sandals on when you come to church. It's like Jesus came to church with sandals, right? Take your shoes off, you know. Imagine Chuck Smith with the hippies. In fact, his wife Kay was the one that really fell in love with, with the hippies. Man, talk about come as you are. Just just Come. Just come. See, that's, that's the very thing that illustrates the heart of God. He invites everyone, but He just invites you to come as you are. He'll meet you right where you are. You don't have to get cleaned up before you, you come to Him because you'll never make it to Him. He'll meet you right where you are. And then the cleanup process starts. It's called sanctification as we come to surrender our lives to Him and give Him our whole lives. He gives us a new heart, a whole new life, makes us new creatures in Christ. And our holiness is not outward. It's not any kind of symbolism. It's all inward. And he renews us day by day. So here we have these tassels, right? But the Lord is reminding them of who he is. And the very fact, this very last thing that he said here, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. He reminded him once more as he brings him through this lesson, considering discipline and what it yields to the one who's trained by it. I want to turn here and end with this. And that is in Hebrews chapter 12. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, something worthy of considering as we've gone through this. All right, Hebrews chapter 12, if you want to turn there, starting verse 3, actually. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You remember when our Lord Jesus was praying and his sweat was like drops of blood. Brought me back to that. And I thought, wow. Our our Lord knew what he was going to come to on the cross. In fact, he, he pleaded with the Father. If this cup can pass, let it be, but... Nonetheless, your will be done, not mine, right? Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God. And endure, I'm sorry. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is bringing his children through a a time of discipline. And, and I'm sure what he's looking to and what he desires through this time of discipline of, of sending them back into the wilderness and then bringing those who are younger of the age, you know, below the age of 20 into the promised land some 38 years later, that they would be a people who would be prepared to dwell in the promised land. And so it's a powerful lesson and it's one that we should always have before us consider as we sometimes go through those moments to where we're receiving God's discipline. It serves a purpose. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Otherwise, guess what? We get trained again. And we get trained again. And we get trained again. Until we do come to that point to where It produces the very thing that God desires. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are truly thankful for your patience. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. And we know, Lord, that you are full of grace toward your children. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to place before us, to have our our eyes fixed on the hope of heaven, Jesus Christ himself, our prize, so that we may endure whatever it is that we're going through in this day. Lord, not only will you strengthen us 
by that very hope that we have in Christ Jesus. But, Lord, you would help us. You will help us to go through these things in a way in which you are glorified and you are blessed. And so, Lord, we commit our lives into your hands. We ask your blessing, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So good.